That was a very appropriate song to sing right now before the passage that we're getting into. It talks about so many of the themes that we're going to look at. And uh, I'd invite you to open up your Bible, if you have one, to Acts 16. And we're going to start in verse 16, Acts 16, verse 16. And we're continuing on in our study through Acts 16, um, which is saying this truth that God is still in control. And uh, we've seen how he's worked to this point in opening hearts and opening doors for the gospel. And now we're going to see how he's working through opposition. And that's our title this morning, Open Opposition. So turn to Acts 16. And uh, the question that I'd pose to you is, are you living for Jesus? And because if you are, this passage and uh, our study this morning is very relevant for you. I'm not asking, are you living perfectly for him? I'm not asking, uh, are you doing everything without mistake? But I'm saying, are you a child of God? And uh, I just want to demonstrate that this text, our study that we're going to go through, is, is relevant not just if you're trying to bring the gospel into Philippi in the first century, but it's relevant if you are parenting. It's relevant if you have hard times financially. It's, it's relevant if you're being mocked because you speak about Jesus. And it even means something for us if, if Satan is trying to keep you in bed in the morning longer so that you don't have time to refresh yourself in God's presence. This passage is relevant for you today. So turn to Acts 16 and let's read this together, starting in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And one more verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Let's ask for the Lord's help, our God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look at it this morning, that we can open it up, and we can trust you that you speak to us, 
that you would show us your truth, that you would show us Jesus Christ, that you would show us the way of life, that you would grow us in holiness, that you'd build your church. We ask for you to do all of these things and more that we don't even know about. Accomplish your purposes in spite of the opposition around us, in spite of distraction, in spite of the evil one who would distract us and drive us to despair. We ask that you would work powerfully by your spirit into our hearts. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a story that we're looking at. As we go through Acts, these are accounts of events that have really happened, but they're treated in the form of a story. And, uh, and as a story, it's a good, good idea to get a sense of the flow of it. So let me just summarize what we looked at uh, to give us a little bit of context as we jump into the story and, and discover what it is that we need to see. So at this point, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, Uh, They're in Philippi, and they've been called here by the Holy Spirit to Macedonia, Philippi being in Macedonia, and uh, they're carrying out God's purposes, which seem to be that he is uh, wanting to establish a church in Philippi. So now they've headed to the Jewish place of prayer, and while they're on their way, they're intercepted by this demon-possessed slave girl, and uh, the demon is yelling out uh, this message that we're going to look at and uh, And we're going to find that it's to distract from the true message that they're aiming to bring to the people. And uh, finally, they've just had it enough with what this demon is doing. And they cast out the demon in the name of Jesus Christ. It leaves the girl. She's free. But then they have a new problem. Because in casting out the demon, they've actually cast out these people's uh, means of business. The fortune tellers. So then they're all in, uh, up in arms because they've lost their business. So out of uh, desire to uh, bring revenge on, on Paul and Silas, probably, they bring them before the city leaders and they say, all of these false accusations. And uh, the city leaders just want to restore the peace. They want to bring things back to how they were. So they skip the trial. There's none of that. And they send them to prison after beating them severely. And they're kept there, and we find out that even at midnight, late into the night, they're praying and they're praising God with their voices, and the prisoners are listening to them. So that's where we end, and then we get the rest of the story uh, next week. Now, with that taste of the story, what's one of the most obvious realities that you see in this passage? There could be a lot of different things, and uh, what you say might be different from what I've picked out, and that's fine. But what I've found here is that there's a clear theme of opposition. So that's what we're going to look at, opposition. What does this passage have to tell us about opposition in Paul and Silas's life, and opposition in our lives, and uh, there are three things that we're going to look at. So these are the three things. Opposition, number one, it doesn't surprise us. Number two, opposition doesn't stop God's purpose. And number three, opposition doesn't change our tune as Christians. Now let's start with just a definition of opposition. It can mean a lot of different things, but in this case, in this passage, what we're seeing is that opposition is resistance to the cause of Jesus Christ, uh, whether it's human powers or it's spiritual forces. It's resistance to the cause of Christ by human powers or spiritual powers. 
Now, this typically involves some degree of suffering. When we're opposed, we usually suffer in some way for the sake of Christ. So we're gonna refer to suffering a lot as the result of opposition. But I want you to know, I'm not talking only, like we said, of when you're planting a church in Philippi. This could be when you're trying to prepare a meal for your family, and you're just about to throw the towel in, or you're trying to encourage a friend by picking up the phone, and you're distracted by all kinds of things. We're not going to label every single thing as spiritual opposition, but what I want us to recognize from this passage is this truth that opposition exists and that we shouldn't be surprised when Satan's behind it and we shouldn't be surprised that God has good purposes in all of it. So this is the first thing. Opposition doesn't surprise us. The most obvious thing from this passage has to be, if we're talking about opposition, is that it happened. They experienced it. First, it came in the form of this demon-oppressed slave girl. One of Satan's cruel minions had taken up residence inside of her, and now he was controlling her. He was giving her messages that the people actually around her respected. The people regarded these things that the demon was saying as prophetic, as a word from a god. She was fortune-telling in some way. We don't even know how that all worked, but they were telling the future, and the people thought it was real, and they paid money for it, and her owners were making a good buck. Now, what's the message that the demon's saying? Look at verse 17. The demon was crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What do we make of that? Is this girl a walking billboard for Jesus? It kind of seems like that, and that's what I thought until I I dug a little bit more into the context that they're in in first century Rome. Let's dive into the scene. I I want to point out two things. First, They're in Philippi where there's virtually no Judaism because there are virtually no Jews. There is no thought to the God of the Bible by the people that are listening to this demon's words. Their religious world was pluralistic. So every person could have their, their own pantheon of gods. Some of them would be lower in their minds and some of them would be higher. But the point is they would have a highest God, a most high God that they regarded as supreme. Now, the second thing is everyone around is looking for the way of salvation. That word doesn't mean forgiveness of sins necessarily. That word means that they are getting release from something. And the people are looking for release from mortality, release from uh, the physical realm. They're looking for salvation. So what does it mean when the demon yells out, these guys can show you the most high God in the way of salvation? Is that a help or is that a hindrance to what they're trying to do? At best, it's a confusion of the message. It's a jumbling of Christianity with Greco-Roman pantheism. It's like if you were watching a video on your phone and then all of a sudden this ad comes up from this well-known fitness person saying that I've got this new fitness program and it is the best. There's no problem with that. Like it's probably a great program, but the point is it's just like everything else that's out there. 
It's a confusion of the message. So Satan, through one of his demons, is opposing the missionary team by muddying the message. But does it surprise us that Satan is opposing the work of Jesus Christ? Nope. This is what's always happened. Think about Job. Satan attacked him, right? And what was the result at the end? Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. God did a great work in what Satan thought was a great plan. Think of Peter when Jesus was arrested. Satan demanded to have Peter so that he might sift him like wheat. Think of Jesus, our Lord himself. He was confronted by the devil as soon as he was baptized. And the devil kept up his onslaught as best as he could through, through Jesus' whole life. He was opposing him through demons, through the religious leaders, through his own disciples. Judas betrayed Jesus because Satan had put the plan into his heart. And then think of Paul. Paul, he got his fair share of suffering. On one account, the Lord allowed the devil to inflict Paul to humble him. And what did Paul call this affliction? He called it a messenger of Satan. Satan was working in Job, in Peter, in the Lord Jesus himself. He was working in the life of Paul. And if you are loved by God, you will also face Satan's schemes. It's not something that should be a surprise to us. And it's not something that always just comes in big, blatant ways like this slave girl. But he's in the little things. Uh, Liz and I recently read through the screw tape letters, and if you read through that book, you will recognize the reality of the subtlety of Satan's schemes in our everyday lives. It's, it's frightening. But we have a great God. You see, Satan wants us to suffer, but it's not the suffering that's bad. It's that he wants us to suffer so that we'll despair and we'll forsake God. That's the point. That was his plan with Job way back at the beginning, and he's been refining his plan ever since. But Satan's problem is that he doesn't know the bigger, the more beautiful, more wise purposes of God. Satan prowls around like a lion, but he doesn't roam free. He's on a leash, and God holds the other end. So we're not surprised when opposition comes. We're not surprised when it comes from the devil. He will oppose you when you speak for Jesus, and he'll resist you when you live for Jesus, anything you're doing. He's been doing this from the beginning, but there's something better for us in our suffering when we're opposed by him, and it's God's doing. Before we move on, God has a thousand things that he's doing in your suffering, and you could tell me a thousand things that you've experienced God doing in your suffering, but here are two things that come up over and over again in the New Testament and that are relevant to our passage. Number one, he's saving souls to build his church. God is doing that all the time. He's saving people and building his church. Number two, he's shaping us to be more and more like who we're meant to be, reflections of Jesus Christ. 
This is the sort of work, these two things and so many more, that Christ is inviting us into while we endure the ache of opposition. So that's the first thing. Now to see what it looks like for God to advance these good purposes that we know he has, to see what that looks like in today's passage, let's look at our second observation. The second thing is, opposition doesn't stop God's good purposes. So let's zoom out of our passage and see a little bit more the whole of the missionary's time in Philippi, the whole of chapter 16. Now, they were led by the Holy Spirit to Macedonia, specifically to Philippi. But by the time you get to chapter 17, the next one, they're gone from Philippi. They've left the city. But in this part, in the middle, God has a purpose for this missionary team, and it's to plant a church. So this is the purpose. We're recognizing that opposition doesn't stop God's good purposes. He has a purpose in this passage to build his church. And let's see two things from this passage that will not stop God's good purposes. Number one, not Satan. Where did they start? God started by going to a prominent, respected woman named Lydia. That was the first person that he visited supernaturally in power. Last week we saw that Paul sat down with a group of women. That was the first people that he went to. They were gathered for prayer and God opened Lydia's heart to see Jesus Christ, to believe on him, and she was baptized and her whole household. And then she and her house were the first to be added to this new church at Philippi. So that's the first act of the salvation story in Philippi. Today, we're in the second act. And who do we meet but another woman living a totally different life? This poor girl is a slave. And in more than one way, she has a spiritual master, the devil through a demon controlling her, and she has earthly masters. And they're making money from her. And her time goes to them. And her life goes to them. She's been stripped of her identity. And she has no life of her own. And without even wanting it, she's given herself over to these cruel masters. But opposition doesn't stop God's purpose. Whether it's the scheme of these men or if it's the scheme of the devil, God will save sinners and he'll build his church. So what does he do here in the name of Jesus Christ? He delivers this girl from the demon's oppression. That's wonderful news. We don't see all of the context and we don't see it actually happening before our eyes, but this is an incredible thing that God's delivered this girl from the oppression of Satan. And we don't see it in this passage, but I think it's implied that we're supposed to understand that when she was freed from Satan's oppression, she was given full freedom, and she received full freedom in Jesus Christ through faith, because that's exactly what happened at other times. When people were oppressed by demons and they were freed by Jesus Christ, even in Luke's other writings, in the Gospel of Luke, in, in Luke chapter 8, that's exactly what happens. You remember the guy who has this whole legion, he calls it, of demons that are inside of him, and Jesus casts the demons out into the pigs, and what happens? The guy goes into the city and he tells everyone in faith of what Jesus Christ has done for him in freeing him. 
No doubt. That's what happened with this girl here. God is building his church in Philippi. First he adds a respectable, well-off God-fearer, and now he adds a slave who was oppressed and possessed by Satan. Both of them women. And God's now purposefully and powerfully visited these women in his mission to bring his church to Philippi. And they're the first key players in the church here. It's an incredible thing that God is doing. Does the demon stop or put a dent in God's plan? God uses the demon's short-sighted scheme to show his powerful grace to this girl and give her a new life. So Satan does not stop God's good purposes. So what else is in this passage that might look like it's going to put a dent in God's plan? The second thing is false accusations, beatings, and jail time. Look at verse 19. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, and that was the real reason, the real reason was that they were out money, and that's what they were upset about. When they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, the city leaders, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Okay, is that true? No, it's a total misrepresentation of what they were doing. Luke is trying to demonstrate through his gospel in the book of Acts that Christianity doesn't actually pose a threat to the government. It's not designed as an overthrowing of earthly powers. God's kingdom is a kingdom not of this world, and Christianity is one of peace, of respect, of authority, of submission to government. So these are false accusations. Now, verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. Now you'd think here that Paul and Silas would have asserted their rights as Roman citizens and would have stopped all of this, would have prevented the beating. And uh, they might have, but for whatever reason, maybe the, the crowd was in just such a tizzy that nothing could even be heard and the city magistrates just wanted to restore the peace. That's probably what happened. Verse 23 And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And after having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so that's a setback, you'd think. You'd think that would be a bit of a problem. How are they going to recover from this one? They were just preaching the gospel. By every account, they were carrying out God's purpose. And now without any sin on their part, they've ended up in jail. How are they going to recover from this one? What's God even doing? Let's rewind a bit. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. So you get a message from the Lord to go to Macedonia. You're led to Philippi. You've seen some progress. 
with the salvation of Lydia and her household. That's encouraging. You're carrying out the mission that God has for you. But then you get opposed by Satan and one of his minions and the whole city wants you to get a beating and for you to land in jail. How do you process that? How do you process that if you're in their shoes? What kind of questions do we ask? Is God punishing them because of sin in their lives? No. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, there is no punishment that you will receive for your sin. Now, does it mean that God's abandoned you? No. Jesus said, I am always with you, even until the end of the age. Now, does it mean that God wants to test and refine you? Yes. We're getting a lot closer to the purposes of God, because the answer to that is always, always yes. Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He is refining you. He's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. One more thing. Is he advancing his purposes to build his church and to glorify himself? Yes. That's what he's doing as well. But does that make it easy to face this sort of difficulty? No, it's it's difficult. Now, since we're looking at a story of Paul's suffering specifically, let's ask, does Paul have any reflection on this sort of suffering? What is Paul's mindset for facing every kind of affliction, for facing perplexity, for facing persecution, for being struck physically for the name of Jesus Christ, and for being killed? 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17. This is Paul's mindset for facing opposition and suffering. He says, we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. That's his mindset. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's a light affliction, not because it's easy in the moment, but because the weight of the glory is so great. So what was Paul and Silas's light momentary affliction? How is God preparing for them glory? How is he refining them? How is he glorifying himself and building his church? The answer is that in his wisdom, he sent them to jail. Now, I'm not going to spoil the rest of the story. That's for next week. In, in, a, in a week or just a few hours in the time of the story, God will show his power and he will declare himself to be Lord over all of their circumstances. But we already know the whole story right now. So we can reflect back and we can say that God is still powerful and he's still working his purposes. And what does Paul say? How does he reflect on him being in jail? Later he's in jail again and he says this to the Ephesians so that they wouldn't be discouraged because of his imprisonment. He says, I don't want you to lose heart. 
over what I'm suffering for you because this is your glory. I don't want you to lose heart over my suffering because it's your glory. Your glory is that God is accomplishing his good purposes through suffering, through spiritual opposition and everything that results from it. Now, did Paul and Silas no longer feel the pain in their bodies from this terrible beating? Did they no longer feel the emotional and the mental strain of this setback? They felt it like every other human would. But the point is that they didn't lose heart because they knew that opposition was to be expected and they knew that it wasn't surprising that it was coming from Satan and he knew that it wasn't surprising that God was working good purposes in all of it and that he was in control. This brings us to our final observation. Opposition doesn't change our tune. Look with me at verse 25. About midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They felt the pain on their raw backs as they leaned against the prison walls and they felt disappointment. But they were expecting suffering and they knew that God was working in them and they knew that the Holy Spirit was with them and Jesus Christ with him. So they were ready. And how did they respond? They prayed and they sang. They praised God. At least until midnight. That's an amazing thing. That is a truly amazing thing. That God empowered these servants to be able to have the right perspective and to have joy, to be suffering and to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing even in this situation. This isn't normal. This can only happen if the Holy Spirit is powerful in a person. They're not even the only ones that responded this way, just in the book of Acts. The other apostles back in Acts 5 had this happened, they were beaten, they were put in jail, and when they were released, it's recorded in, in 5 verse 41, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Now the point here, the point in God's word isn't to make you feel bad that you don't respond all the time like the apostles did right here, that sometimes you doubt God, that sometimes you're driven just about to despair. A lot of us will suffer a lot more than we ever have in our lives. It's probably the case for me. It's probably the case for a lot of us. And some of us won't suffer as bad as we have in the past. But all of us will. All of us will suffer from opposition from Satan, from opposition from human forces around us, But the question is, how do we prepare for when it comes so that we don't despair? It's fine and good for us to sing at times uh, lines like in the song, Blessed Be Your Name. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
But how do we prepare? And I don't dare to give you some naive, ignorant, shallow plan for facing suffering so that you're going to not have any issues and that it's going to be easy sailing. I think that's going to get better. Should we make a little switch? We're good. So I'm not going to try to give you something that's shallow so that you will somehow think that when you arrive in any form of suffering, it'll be easy going. But what I don't want is for us to be people who rise with our circumstances only to crash and burn as soon as things go south. We want to be, this is easy to say, but we truly want to be like Jesus who endured the cross. Why? For the joy ahead. There's an easy plan, but what we can do right now is we can live lives of preparation for opposition. So being ready doesn't mean that when tragedy strikes, that you'll be unaffected, that you won't feel the pain in your back as you lean against the prison cell, that you will sing out like nothing happened. But what it does mean is that you will pray and you will rejoice with tears in your eyes knowing that your suffering is not for nothing. That Christ has gone before you. He's gone before you in weakness and in trial. And he is now with you, in you, and beside you, present in your suffering by his spirit. And God is working gloriously good things for you, for those around you, and for his glory. You can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is the power of God's cross and his resurrection God promises that if Christ is in you, that you experience the power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So we're not left helpless here. We're left with a powerful God. We're not just saying, oh, we're going to be ready when things go south. I hope so. Maybe we will. We're saying that God who is powerful and has raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead for our sins, for our life, for our glory, he is working in us now and he can sustain us in our present situation. And it's through opposition and sometimes pain and heartache that God's working his good purposes in you and through you. So the three things we've looked at is that opposition doesn't surprise us because it's the path of our Lord Jesus Christ himself and it's the path for all who love him. And secondly, opposition doesn't stop God's purposes because it's actually through suffering that God is advancing his purposes. And he's still good. And thirdly, Opposition doesn't change our tune as God's children because we trust in a wise God. 
So whatever you're enduring for the sake of Christ, and I don't mean just walking out into a new place trying to plant a church, like we said. We mean anything that is opposing you as you seek to live for Jesus Christ in the little things and the big things of life. It may be attacks from the devil on your family relationships, and it may be your experience at work. It could be sickness or disease. But we're going to sing these words in a minute. It says this in the song Cornerstone um, from the old hymn, Christ the Solid Rock. When darkness seems to hide his face, we feel that, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor, Jesus Christ himself, holds inside the holy of holies. The very presence, the throne room of God behind the veil. That is where my hope lies, with a God who's in control. So don't be surprised when the trial comes. The fiery trial, Peter calls it. And don't be surprised when it comes from the devil. He's working all the time and he doesn't sleep. But also don't be surprised when our good God is refining you and working his purposes in you because he loves you. You have an awesome hope being stored up for you right now and Jesus Christ is coming back soon and you'll be with him in glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and none of our suffering can compare. So don't let your circumstances change your tune, friend, Christian. Ready yourself. Let the song of your heart be that you trust in your good God. Fight for joy. And when it's hard, tell Jesus that it's hard. He understands. He's been with you in weakness and in suffering. And he's with you now. Don't lose heart. Our God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement that it is. We live in a broken world. We live, you know, Lord in a world that is difficult. And we know that as those who are loved by you, we're disciplined and we're refined. But we thank you for the hope that we have, that you're powerful in the suffering that we experience because of opposition. We thank you for your cross where you have saved us. We thank you for your resurrection, Jesus Christ, where you were victorious over sin, over Satan, over all of his minions, over the power of the grave, over the hell, over death. And we thank you that we'll be with you in glory very soon. Oh Lord Jesus, come soon and bring your people to yourself. And until then, we ask that you would comfort us, that you would work powerfully in us, sustain us, help us to endure in trial, and let's not lose heart. You are good God, and you're working good purposes, and I pray that you'd help us to know it at all times. We forget so quickly, Lord. Help our unbelief. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.